Thank you, Isla. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. Children's Church is dismissed. Um, and my voice is a little weak this morning, so hopefully God will give grace and you can bear with me. We're drawing near to our, the end of our study through 1 Timothy. This morning, as you look at godliness and satisfaction, let's read... 1 Timothy chapter 6, <coughs> verses 3 to 10. 1 Timothy 6, chapter 3 to 10. I mean, verses 3 to 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Lord God, as we look at your word, Lord, I pray that you would guard us from being satisfied in anything other than you. You would guard us specifically for chasing after money and this world's possessions when we have everything we need in you. So Lord, give grace now as we hear your word and change us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> this, this section of this text is Paul's third dealing with the false teachers who are at Ephesus. Um, so we're going to sort of go back to chapter 1 and sort of track our way through this. If you remember, Paul wrote this letter to, the, to Timothy at Ephesus precisely because he wanted Timothy to deal with and address the false teachers. He was concerned he might be delayed, and he thought it was such a priority, um, thought it was so important that he wanted Timothy to start without him in case he was delayed. We see that um, firstly in in chapter 1, verse 3, as I urged you when I came to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And in case that sounds like Paul just wants Timothy to be the spiritual axe man, being mean and unkind, he says the aim of this charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying about or the things about which they make confident assertions. So here's our first look at this. Paul says it's really important for the sake of love in the body that false teaching, erroneous teaching, novel teaching be silenced, 
the letter of First Timothy, in many respects, authorizes Timothy to do this, because we saw in previous weeks, some of these teachers may in fact be elders. And, and Paul wants Timothy to shut it down. And so with the apostles' authority um, in Scripture, having an inspired letter authorizing him to do that, he's doing it. And Paul then comes back to this topic in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. It's sort of it's weaved throughout this letter. Chapter 4, 1 to 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And, and so here we learn a little further about these, these teachings, these myths, these genealogies are leading to what we call asceticism, which is the belief that treating your body harshly um, somehow results in holiness. There are certain traditions where people would flagellate themselves and, and whip themselves um, in, in some way of accruing credit or favor with God. Um, here, you're not eating certain things. You're, you're forbidding and, and anything that brings physical pleasure, marriage, an, an austere life. And, and Paul says that's, that's from demons. That's not from God. Now, he goes on the rest of the passage and talks about a godly discipline, not that we're to be hedonists running after every earthly pleasure, in fact, which is what we're going to address today. And then in this final passage in chapter 6, he, he takes one more charge at them. The passage sort of folds in half. The first three verses, 3, 4, and 5, dealing with these teachers. And then as the topic of greed and money comes up, it hinges into the second point about Paul wanting to guard Timothy and guard the Ephesian church from covetousness and greed. So we're going to work through our two points. First, false teachers, part three. And then we'll deal with godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Now in the Greek, verses three to five is one long conditional sentence. And it takes the form of an if-then. So the, the first half is verse three. If such and such a situation is true, and we'll look at that first, then verses four and five are true also. This one long conditional sentence. So we're first going to look at the identification of the false teachers. Your first blank is identification. Identification. And he identifies these teachers positively and negatively. What they do and what they don't do. And so we read that if anyone is teaching a different doctrine. And this is the word hetero um, didaskalos hetero, different doctrine, other doctrine. It may be a word that Paul even coined. It only occurs here and in chapter 1, verse 3 in the entire New Testament. Um, it's just different teaching. They're, they're, they're bringing forward new things. And there's always in the church people who are willing to write books and bring forward new teachings. Um, it seems like we're constantly, if you read the newspapers, new people have brought forward new things, whether it's the new gospel of Thomas or whatever. There's always new teachings coming forward. And so that's what these men are known by. They're, they're teaching new things. But moreover, they're also rejecting or not holding to 
the uh, sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So they reject healthy words. Literally, the sound words are healthy words. Um, these are novel, strange doctrines. And he defines them two ways. These healthy words are first and foremost of our Lord Jesus Christ. And secondarily, the teaching leading to godliness. So what we've got are men who are on the one hand bringing forth something new, something novel, something unheard of. On the other hand, they're not holding to, they're not making much of the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that leads to godliness. So what is being referenced by that? Well, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ would probably refer to the Gospels and even much of the New Testament. It can mean of as in about words of Jesus, or it could just mean the words Jesus spoke. Either way, we're talking about the Gospels. We're talking about the New Testament. They're not holding to that. These are not Christ-centered teachers. They're majoring on their minor point. They're majoring on their genealogy, their strange teaching. And in doing so, they are not holding fast to Christ. Um, I just recently, someone emailed me a, a blog to read. And it was exactly what was going on. There was this new secret teaching. Um, and what it was doing is actually undermining the, the virgin birth of Jesus. It's nothing new. It happens all the time. And, and so the way we can spot false teachers like this that Paul is talking about is on the one hand, someone bringing something new, something unheard of. New doesn't mean it's always bad, but when someone's found something in the Bible that no one in 2,000 years has found previously, be cautious. Be, be cautious. Um, I think it was uh, Charles Hodge, president of Princeton Seminary, who was proud to say that in 25 years as the president, there was not a single new idea that had come in the seminary. And he, and he took it as a statement of pride. Um, so be, be careful for something new, some secret thing no one's ever seen before. I mean, I'll hear him out, but some, some caution should go off. Simultaneously, watch out for people whose teaching doesn't center on Jesus, doesn't put Jesus front and center, doesn't make it about him. M Martin Luther has this great quote. He says, I have found and noted in all histories of the whole Christian church that all those who have maintained the central doctrine of Jesus Christ in its integrity have remained safe and sound in the true Christian faith. Although they erred and sinned in other respects, yet they were finally saved, for if anyone stands firm and right on this point, that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, all other articles of the Christian faith will fall into place for him and firmly sustain him. That's a good quote. That if we're, if we're centering on who Jesus is, and if our teaching and our Bible reading and our, and our preaching and our singing is centered on Jesus... Then, then we're going to be safe. We're going to be in a good spot. And likewise, we've got to be careful when we're so into this thing we think we saw that Jesus sort of gets put on the sideline and put on the sideline and put on the sideline. Secondly, there's also this teaching that leads to godliness. Now, this word for godliness has shown up a number of times in the pastoral epistles so far. Um, it, it means, the word Eusebia, it means an awesome respect accorded to God, devoutness, piety, godliness, worship. Or another dictionary describes it this way. 
a manner of life characterized by reverence towards God and respect for the beliefs and practices related to him. So this word translated godliness in the ESV is not focusing primarily on external activity, although it's in view, but it really is about a heart that is in awe and reverence towards God and then the attendant lifestyle that goes with it. So it's this doctrine that leads to reverence and awe of God and the lifestyle that goes with it. And it's, it showed up periodically in the book. Let's go back to chapter 2. Where Paul wants Timothy and all Christians praying for their leaders. So that in verse 2, for all kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So it should be every Christian's aim to live a godly life. And in this term, this word meaning to live a life that is, is focused on and in reverence to, in awe of the living God and then bearing fruit that keeps with that. It shows up again a little later in chapter 3, verse 16. <clears throat> with this great hymn, remember? The great song, gospel song in 1 Timothy. It says, 1 Timothy three sixteen. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. If you remember a few months ago when we looked at this, this, this is a gospel summary, and it's Jesus-centered. He was manifest. He was vindicated. He was seen. He was believed on, and he was taken up into glory. And then again in chapter 4, one last time, Paul's concern for Timothy pursuing this. And this is where Timothy um, was to realize that physical discipline had some value, but disciplining yourself for godliness, oh, that's really valuable. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for, and here it is, godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this notion of godliness, developing a heart, cultivating a heart that is in awe, in reverence, in love with the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then a life that's built around that, built upon that, that's really important in this letter. It's really important for Paul to get across to Timothy. And so consequently, teachers that aren't concerned with that, that aren't concerned with lifting God up so that people would be in awe of him. Because you're, you're always going to be able to sell books and make money if you make God down at our level. You're, you're, you're not going to have a problem finding listeners, making a tame, approachable God. You know, sort of the high-five Jesus who sort of stands there with his thumbs up and thinks you're just wonderful. You're going to have no lack of um, hearers for that type of message. The God of the Bible, in Revelation, John the Apostle, who described himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved, when Jesus appears in front of him, does not run up and give him a high five. He falls down on his face as if dead because he is in the presence of the living God, no longer humbled, no longer glory revealed, but now glorified. And so an awe and a reverence for God is something we want to cultivate and teaching should lead us towards that 
So we can identify these false teachers positively in what they are teaching, new, strange doctrines, and what they are not teaching. They are not centering on Jesus, and they are not teaching people to reverence and awe and worship God. There's, there's no shortage of teaching that puts man at the center of the stage. It puts man as the measure of all things, and all things exist for us. And the gospel sort of becomes, there's this lonely God up in heaven, and he made these wonderful people like you and me, and heaven just wouldn't be complete without us. And so God the Father looks from, from heaven, and he says, well, I love my son, but there are these people. Well, if I have to choose, I guess I'm going to choose these people. And I've, I've heard this. You are worth dying for. That's not what the cross is about. The cross is not the declaration of your and my worth. The cross is the declaration of the worth of the Son of God who died for his enemies. What amazing love that is. See, it's very, you, can, you can present the gospel in a man-centered way or you can present the gospel in a Jesus-centered, God-centered way. This stuff matters. So this is their identification and so what Paul says in verse 3 is, if this is true, where this is true, where men are teaching new things, where men are sidelining Jesus and his word, where men are sidelining the glory of God, what follows is true. And next we see point B, their condemnation. Condemnation. He says, if this is the case, this person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind, depraved in mind, and deprived of the truth. And so this judgment, this consequence comes down in two sets, moral and relational, and spiritual and mental. And we see the moral and relational first. First, this person is puffed up and arrogant. Um, the, uh, the New English Bible translates this there, arrogant, known, pompous ignoramuses. That's probably not a bad translation. Or ignorant, know-nothings. I read another translator. And the point is this. To set aside what God has said, to set aside the words of Jesus, to put something else center stage, you've, you've got to think you're pretty smart. You've got to be pretty self-confident. You've got to be pretty arrogant. And yet in doing so, these teachers, these people demonstrate they know nothing actually ignorant. There's a great irony here. All this stuff's usually brought forward in the name of some secret um, hidden knowledge that somebody was smart enough, wise enough to figure out and they bring it forward. And you know, Everyone else has missed this for 2,000 years of church history, but I figured it out. And in, in fact, they're actually ignorant. Arrogant. He understands nothing. And there's another contrast here. Literally in the Greek, it's he is word sick word sick. And that's in contrast to healthy words. Remember earlier, these teachers don't hold to healthy words, and consequently they become word sick. They're sick for arguing. They're just, they, they got a fever, and the only cure is arguing about words. And so they, they just want to, you've met people like this. They just want to argue and debate. They're never happier than when they were, you know, fighting with someone about some word or words that's what they do. It's, it's the result of setting aside Jesus, setting aside the glory of God, and putting forward some new and novel teaching. And then, of course, that leads to relational fruit. 
quarrels, envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. What happens is when you've got a church filled with a few people like this, factions arise because, because this is rooted in pride. I want the spotlight on me. And so when Dave Lample's got his new novel teaching against my new novel teaching, well, I, that's not okay. His, no, who's, his novel teaching's bad. Mine's the good one. And so factions emerge and quarreling emerges. People take sides. People begin to suspect each other. And godliness is not the result. But moreover than that, and next to the moral relational, write the word fruit. But there's even a more devastating consequence of this setting aside of Jesus and his teaching and the glory of God. And that's the spiritual and mental results. It says, these people are of constant friction, people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And, and what he's saying is this. These are people who, just as in chapter 4 we saw, these are people who have seared their consciences. There's an action that took place in the past that there's no recovering from, it's got a permanent consequence of a seared, dead, lifeless conscience. It's the same verb tense, the perfect tense, which is a past action completed with present results. These people, due to what they have done, are now in a state of having a corrupt mind. It's a permanent effect. Not only are they in a corrupted mind, but they are now robbed of the truth. And it's, it's a sad statement. It indicates that these were people who probably made a good start. These are people who at one time had the truth. Perhaps even preached and taught the truth. And it's frightening, but if you look through a lot of today's sort of false teachers, they, most of them started out pretty okay. There's a guy up in Michigan who started out okay. And, and most recently is, is off the reservation. Um... But these people start out okay. They start out with the truth. And then, because they're promoting their novel teaching, the consequence is, not only do they become arrogant, not only do they become conceited, not only do they become quarrel and word sick, but God, in judgment, gives them over to a depraved mind. And they, they lose the truth they once had. You remember the parable of the sower, where the seed falls on hard ground, the birds come and take it away. If you don't respond to the word in faith... You may not have the word for much longer. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, where this um, process is, is laid out pretty clearly. Because the, the big point is this. What we do with truth matters. If you embrace truth, if you respond to it in faith, well, then good things are going to happen, and that's going to bear good, godly fruit in your life. But if what you do with truth is you hold it down, set it to the side, watch out. Romans 1, 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Now look what they do with this knowledge. Knowledge of God in creation. For although they knew God, 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. It's the exact same progression. If you have truth and you don't respond to it by receiving it gladly in faith, then you're likely going to become an arrogant, ignorant, know-nothing. And you may not have that truth around much longer. And then thirdly, point C, oh, next to, and next to the spiritual and mental, write the word root. So the moral and relational is sort of the fruit of what's going on, but at root now, they've corrupted minds, and they no longer even have the truth. And that's sort of now at the root of their ongoing ministry, their ongoing teaching. But thirdly, and, and most severely, Paul goes at their motivation. Their motivation. So we've seen the identification, the condemnation, and now the motivation. They are greedy for material gain. They are greedy for material gain. It says that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Which again is exactly what goes on in Romans 1. We, I want the creation. I don't want to worship God I want the stuff. I want the stuff. And so the, the, the blasphemy here of taking the worship and the awe of God as a commodity to be sold to make money is frightening. But again, if, if you come up with some new novel teaching, you could make some money. Sadly, in America, the Christian book market is, is rife for people coming up with new things, and you can get a Christian bestseller pretty easily. You just need to know what to say. Tell people that God thinks they're swell. Tell people they're at the center of everything. Tell people their problems aren't their fault. Tell people anything other than the truth. And by large part, people will eat it up. These people believe that godliness is a means for gain. This is their motivation. Rather than being engaged in a teaching ministry for God's glory, for the good of others, they're in it for the money. And it's not just a problem at Ephesus. When we get to Titus, you can read Titus 1, 10 to 11. Paul telling Titus, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So Crete had its share of people who were teaching for the money. And, and Titus was going to need to silence them as well. So this is the danger. The danger is of false teaching, of, of setting aside truth, of setting aside making much of Jesus, the glory of God, coming up with some new hidden secret thing, making that the center. If that happens, in consequence, our minds are going to become futile, we're going to become arrogant, deceived. Envy, strife, and dissension is going to be sown in the body. And Paul now pivots on this Warning that really at the root bottom line with their motivation is money. He then hinges and turns that around. Maybe up to this point, you're feeling like, yeah, Paul, you blast those no good false teachers. But at this point in the text, he, he does a sharp 180 and heads back now towards us, towards Timothy, towards the church. Because the danger of wanting money, the danger of being in it for what 
you can get financially. It's not a danger simply for false teachers. But it's a danger for each and every one of us. So now we're going to look at godliness plus contentment equals great gain. And again, three points. Notice there's a play on words. This is a different type of gain. The word gain is used in verse 5. They think godliness is a means of great gain. And then in verse 6, where he says, well, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. But what makes this a word play is the word gain means two different things in these two different verses. In verse 5, gain is material. It's paychecks. It's gold and silver. And yet Paul means something very different in verse 6 when he says a different type of gain. First of all, notice that here, godliness is not said to be the means to a gain. It's not the way to get gain. It itself is the gain. Godliness with contentment is gain. So to unpack that further, reverencing, loving, being in awe of God, knowing his son, is great gain. It doesn't lead to great gain. It is great gain. And that's put over against what money can offer. It's put over and against what money can offer. And, and let's be honest, the reason we love money is usually one of two reasons. One, what it can offer us now. Right now, money can offer us comfort. You can eat nice food, drive nice cars, live in nice homes, wear nice clothes, go on nice vacations. There's a certain prestige that comes with money because other people see how we dress and where we go on vacation and what cars we drive. There's a certain amount of power that money brings. So we, we, we like money. We're hardwired to like money because of what it can give us now. I think the other reason we like money is because of what it promises security for the future. There's a reason why stocks and retirement funds are called securities. And so some people want money because they want to go spend it and live lavishly now. And other people want money to sort of hoard it away in case calamity comes in the future. Those tend to be the two reasons people want money. And Paul's going to deal with both these reasons. He's going to deal with both these, both these desires for why we might be tempted to want lots of money. But first, I just want to read verse, a familiar verse in Luke 12, 34. Jesus says, speaking of money, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the challenge for us here, the challenge for us in all of this is what do we treasure? Because Paul's just come out and said, knowing God, reverencing God, loving God, being in fear of God, is great gain. That, that's, that's what we should be motivated about. Earlier in the book, we want to discipline ourselves to grow in the reverence, fear, love of God. B bodily discipline is of some value, but oh, Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. Here, not contrasted with physical um, activity, he's contrasting it with money. And over and against money, oh, godliness is gain. But it challenges what we want, doesn't it? It reveals what we truly love and value. This reveals what we truly love and value. Because if you're not really interested in godliness, then this whole section's not going to make much sense to you. When Paul says, Timothy, godliness with contentment is such great gain. Well, I'm not interested in godliness. And we know what the right answer should be here. We know that we should all say, yes, I'm interested in godliness. But let me, let me ask you this. 
in the coming year, we've just entered a new year. In the coming year, what would bring you more joy? What would get you more excited? What would you view as greater, greater gain? Um, getting a windfall, you know, some far-off relative dies and you just get inherit, you know, $50,000. Or you know God a little better this coming year. You fear the living God a little more this year. You know his word a little more this year. You're living out a life of godliness a little more. Which, which one would get you more excited? Which one would you stay awake at night thinking about? Which one would you talk about? Which one are you praying for? Which one would you rejoice more for? And if you're like me, you don't want to answer that question. Because our hearts, no, because our hearts are, are fickle. Our hearts are fickle. So let's not pretend that just because we know the right answer, we believe the right answer. This is, this is tough stuff. And so Paul gives reasons, further reasons. Point B, verses 7 and 8. The argument from mortality. The argument from mortality. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. The point is this. Everyone comes into the world the same way. With nothing naked and everyone leaves with nothing there's, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses right there's, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses everyone leaves the same way and life then is sort of the time between two visits to the hospital and, and what Paul's assuming here is an eschatological view that sees eternity life with God in heaven and it sees what a short time this is on earth and in light of that, how foolish is it to stockpile things on this earth that you can't keep where moth and rust destroy when we could be pursuing things that yield eternal results in heaven? That's the argument. You know, Job says, naked I came into the world, naked I leave the world. And, and so we've got to remember that. But there's a temptation for us to become practical atheists. We forget about the kingdom. We forget about glory. We forget about heaven. What we see right in front of us is all we really believe in. We, we sideline the thought that we're all going to die someday. We don't want to think about that. And then we live for the moment. And the way to fight that is to remind ourselves of this temporal life, to remind ourselves of our mortality, to remind ourselves that man is but dust. He's like a flower that springs up and the sun comes out and it withers. That, that's what we need to remind ourselves so that we don't live like this life is all there is living for. So we don't live like having the most stuff is what matters. You know, the person who dies with the most toys wins. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can. Is a, is a line I've heard before. And you, you, you fight back against that with the truth that we're all going to die. None of us are taking any of this with us. None of us came into the world with any of this. And there's a life after this where the, the, the crowns, the rewards, the treasure that we store up there lasts forever. That's the way Jesus reasons. Um, We've got to learn contentment. Contentment. To be content with what we have. Which is hard because each and every one of us is tempted to think, if only I had this one thing. I remember growing up as a child, it was one toy. I'd see a commercial for a new Transformer, and if only I had that Transformer, Dad, I'd be happy, and I'd do all my chores, and I'd never complain again. And, and we laugh about it, because children will just say that, because they don't realize how silly it sounds. But we all believe that. We just 
are smart enough not to say that. How many of you here, if only I could get that promotion at work, if only I could get a boyfriend or girlfriend, if only I could have a new car, if only we could afford a vacation to Hawaii, if only, fill in the blank, then I'd be happy, then I'd be content, right? It's a lie. It's a lie. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's a lie. Everyone likes to quote that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But in the context of Philippians 4, 11 to 13, this is what he says, I'm not speaking of need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is not a verse of what I can go get an A on my test. This is about I can have a good attitude when I don't get what I want. I can be content when I don't get what I want. That, that's, that's what God can strengthen us to do all things is talking about. So we talked about the argument for mortality. Next, the very great danger of loving money. The very great danger of loving money. And that's where he spends the rest of his time here in this text. He writes, For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into snares, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so with a very great danger of loving money, and this isn't just a danger for rich people. Poor people can love money too. They just don't have it. But you've met people like that. They're just thinking about money, getting money. They've got plans to get more money. So you can love money and be poor. You can love money and be rich. You can love money and be in between. It's about the heart. Notice he doesn't condemn having money. He doesn't condemn having money. He condemns loving money, seeking money. In fact, if you turn over to a little further in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, he addresses the rich of this world, and he does not rebuke them. In chapter 6, he says, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So he doesn't rebuke you for being rich. And we'll get to that in two weeks. If you do have money, how do you honor God with that? This is about the desire for money, the seeking for money, the pursuing of money, the dreaming of money and the things that money can buy. And so he describes it in a few ways. First is sinking slowly to ruin and destruction. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation to a snare in many senseless and harmful desires. So when we stray off the path of pursuing Christ to pursue things, it's like the devil set up a trap for us. And we can fall into this snare. Because the way we work with money and with all idolatry is you pursue the idol for what the idol can do for you. You see, if you're a Canaanite and you're, you're worshiping, you know, 
Ashtaroth or whatever. You're, you're doing it because you want it to rain. You want kids. You want crops. Whatever it is you want. Your, your goal is to get something, to manipulate this idol to give you what you want. That's when people pursue money that way. If I can get the money, I can get the power, I can get the things that I want to serve me. But it doesn't work that way. Because according to Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, no slave can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. See, there's an enslaving quality to money. And so it initially begins going to it for what you can get, actually flips on its head where you're the one enslaved. See, you thought the money was working for you. You thought the money was doing what you wanted it to do. And eventually, as your heart gets given over to this, you're the one on the end of the strings. And you've seen people like this. You know, I'm sure many of you watched A Christmas Carol or read the story sometime over Christmas. And, and there's a picture of a man who loves money, and he's not happy. It's not giving him things. Ebenezer Scrooge is not a joy-filled person. He is a slave to that which he serves. There's an enslaving quality to money. And if we give our hearts to it, if we start to stray and wander, we will become ensnared. And it bears, next, all types of evil and bad fruit. And it's not that money is the root of all evil, but all types of evil. We can think of some sins that don't come from a love of money. The fall wasn't about money. But you think about the things people will do for money. They'll lie for money. They'll steal for money. They'll covet. Some people murder for money. Take advantage of people for money. And for the things money can buy. There's all types. There's, there's no limit to the amount of evil that will come from people's coveting and desiring of money and things. It's just it's a fountain that, that spews forth all types of bad fruit. It's probably a proverb here that Paul is quoting. This, this love of money is the root of all types of evil. And then, sort of coming back full circle, point three here, verse 10, he goes back to the false teachers and he says, through, it, through craving this, some have wandered away from the faith. Now the some are clearly these false teachers who are in it for the money. The warning is, don't become like them. They just wander away from the faith. They just wander away. And the, the irony here is that by wandering away, chasing after this prize, they pierce themselves with many pangs. See, Jesus was pierced for our sins. These people are pierced for their desires. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible irony. They abandon the pursuit of the pierced one, Jesus Christ, the living God. And in pursuing what they think promises them pleasure, what they think promises them security, they actually become pierced themselves with many sorrows. Just to ask you, the people with the most money, are they the happiest people that you know? All your friends, of all your relatives, the people who have the most material possessions, are they the most joy-filled? Content? It's not usually the case. There are exceptions, but it's not usually the case. I just want to close. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 13. Because mostly we've been looking at this notion that pursuing money for what it can get you it's not going to satisfy you. But there's another reason, like I said, that we love money. It promises us security. It promises us protection when the bad times come. And again, we're not saying it's wrong to have money. 
but don't trust in it. Don't love it. Don't seek it. And there's a wonderful promise in the book of Hebrews I want to close with. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I just want you to think about the logic of that. He gives a command. It's the same command we just read. Don't love money, be content. And then he gives a reason. Because he's not going to leave you. Now what's the implied logic? The implied logic is this. At least for these people. The reason they're tempted to love money is in their heart of hearts they wonder, will God be around for me tomorrow? Or am I going to have to look out for myself? Will God's grace be sufficient tomorrow? Or had I better take matters into my own hands and protect myself? And the writer of Hebrews says, don't love money. Don't love money. Don't love money. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. His grace has been sufficient thus far. It will continue to be sufficient tomorrow. Don't chase after other things that promise security. They will enslave you. They will pierce you. They will trap you. He isn't going to leave you. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He won't. He won't. As we prepare for communion, I would ask the worship team to come up. And that song that we sang this morning, Satisfied, we're just going to sing two more verses of it. You can remain seated. And I just want to encourage you to examine your hearts, where you are with God. What satisfies you? What is your treasure? What do you love? And if you're like me and my heart's sort of torn a little bit both ways, now might be a good time as we sing to confess that to God, to make it your prayer that God would give you an undivided heart in loving him pursuing him, being satisfied in him. Maybe some of you here today don't even know him. So all you know is chasing money. All you know is chasing the things this world has. I'd encourage you to trust in him. He won't leave you. He will be sufficient. So we're going to turn and sing, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table.